millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's new guidance out on staff student complaints. We've had a big budget. OFS has been in court, and we ask if universities will close of coronavirus fears. It's all coming up. Another piece of welcome news is getting rid of VAT on ebooks and on magazines, newspapers, academic journals. This may not make a huge amount of difference to anybody's pocket, um, but it's, I think it's extremely good news because it now means that copies of my own ebook available on Amazon are now going to be 20% cheaper. To the Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Mark Leach, and we have two brilliant guests this morning. Uh, live from the top of the ball ring in Birmingham, it's uh, Smita Jandar, head of education <laughs> at Shakespeare Martino. Smita, your highlight of the week, please. So, my highlight of the week uh, so far has been a dinner at New College Oxford um, where Hugh Grant was nearly present. He wasn't, in fact, present, nearly. but the mere fact that he might have been was quite exciting. Uh, and in Camberwell, it's Johnny Rich, Chief Executive of the Engineering Professors Council, uh, amongst other things. Johnny, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, probably it was going to the launch of Teddy, which is um, the new engineering. Uh, um, institution being set up in Canada Water, but that's not where they had their launch. They had their launch at the top of Tower Bridge, which, which is kind of cool. Ah, and I was not invited. No, you weren't. There's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> right, so yes, we start the week with the budget. This week, the Chancellor presented a budget full of funding promises, but light on policy detail. Uh, we're in line, I think, for significant additional spending of up to £22 billion pounds a year by 24-25 on research innovation. Uh, the sector was broadly pleased about that, of course. Uh, it takes us ever closer to the uh, 2.4% um, spend of GDP by 2027. Um, there's the £800 million pounds for the proposed UK ARPA um, and funding for research in life sciences, mathematics, nuclear fusion and carbon capture. Um, Johnny, what, what else stood out for you in the budget? Well, a couple of things that didn't stand out because they weren't there was anything on tuition fees, which we weren't expecting at the moment. But hidden in, I mean, what that means is that tuition fees in effect will continue to fall. Um, if they're frozen, that's a real terms decline. Um, and as Nick Hillman pointed out earlier in the week, that has a knock on effect for research funding, because there's a cross subsidy from tuition to research. And so the 22 billion, you know, the cross subsidy is a is small fry compared to this very welcome 22 billion. That is fantastic news. Long overdue. Um, still will put us probably below the middle of um, international averages of where we should be. Um, also, we have to take out of that the fact that we're quite possibly not going to be eligible for um, European funding. Um, we've had about 900 million. So again, small fry um, compared to 22 billion, but it's not an, an insignificant amount of money. And there's a multiplier effect. Um, the EPC has done research and we found that for engineering um, research, there was a multiplier effect of about three and a third for every pound spent by Europe in terms of the access to facilities and access to international expertise and so on. 
So money that we weren't having to having to raise, but we were gaining that in terms of benefits. So that it looks it's around about three billion that we might lose in European funding for research. So all of these things do slightly dampen this extremely welcome news on research funding. On the loans, um, one thing that was sort of slipped into the red book, uh, which uh, your team noticed, Mark, and actually, it's one of the few things I spotted from the red book, and I'm no expert, but they are proposing to end the sale of the loan book, which, given that they've been claiming that that's been um, a very good deal for the taxpayer, for them to suddenly stop doing it suggests that they didn't really think it was that good a deal anyway. And another piece of welcome news is getting rid of VAT on ebooks and on magazines, newspapers, academic journals. This may not make a huge amount of difference to anybody's pocket, um, but it's, I think it's extremely good news because it now means that copies of my own ebook available on Amazon are now going to be um, 20% cheaper. Well, actually, they probably won't. It probably means Amazon will take another 20% um, rather than me getting any more or, and, and or it being gonna, any cheaper for anyone else. getting a, a plug-in for the book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, um, called The Human Script. Excellent <laughs> book. Highly acclaimed. I think what was quite interesting in the budget that was the the um the funding that's been given to fe colleges and the sort of national skills fund and the reason i think that's relevant to the conversation we're having is because i think it's sort of is an indication that all the rhetoric we've heard about how um skills and uh, vocational and technical education is the future is perhaps being seen by government as more the preserve of the colleges rather than universities. So that does rather worry me about where we might be going with tuition fees and um, the policy around, you know, what are sort of dubiously entitled low value courses, if they think that actually the solution to the skills gap doesn't sit in universities, it sits in colleges. Um, so I think it is interesting to see how much, you know, money was allocated towards um, adult learning, vocational skills training uh, in yesterday's budget whilst the tuition fee position was kept, as you say, silent. And, and it would be churlish not to welcome the money that's going into the education system at all levels. It, actually, that brings us back to the research point because of that $22 billion, it's cl- not clear that much of that will go direct to universities. A lot of it, I, I suspect, will be redirected through um, industry and through direct funding, you know, uh, Dominic Cummings having his hands on on the decisions about ARPA and so on, and making very direct choices about putting it into specific projects that aren't necessarily going to involve um, universities in, in, certainly not on the traditional funding routes. And uh, so... Whilst there's a huge amount of money, and this is very welcome, and a lot of it will come through universities, the bunting is still in the box, put it that way. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, that, that, um, that this wider sort of, uh, you made the point there, Johnny, that wherever you fund education, it's a great thing. But this wider sense that you fund higher education or further education and not both is, is quite... Um, uh, quite a challenging thing, I think, to to get policymakers' heads around how they all link to each other. And if you if you focus exclusively on one rather than the other, you know, you only end up with the same problem we've got um, uh, that's happened to FE over the last ten years, where it's been ignored. So we've got to try exactly. and keep a balanced view on this. Exactly, and I, th- I think that's kind of the fault line of of a lot of the debates that are going to be happening over the next six months as we head into that second budget and and possible government response to the org review, which kind of lays all of those 
kind of tensions bear, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I, I do. The other thing I want to talk about in the budget is, is, is the stuff related to coronavirus. Now, obviously, this, you know, the headline of the budget was about, um, softening, um, the potential economic blow, uh, that, 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 that could arise from, um, from the pandemic. A lot of the measures targeted at businesses, um, some fairly common sense stuff about, um, sick pay and, and the like. Um, not a lot that seemed to me that, that, that's going to help universities. Um, if government advice over the next few weeks is that campuses have to close. Um, I mean, already there are very serious economic problems that universities are going to face, um, in terms of international recruitment, um, and, and general confidence. I mean, you know, if we are inter- about to enter a period of, um, you know, significant, uh, a, a significant downturn, possibly a recession, um, possibly making it make, uh, d- restrictions on people traveling, um, possible restrictions on campus openings, um, it feels like a bit of a chilly wind. Um, and, um, so far we've not yet heard from the chancellor or anyone else, um, how they're going to stop, uh, particularly some of the universities with the, you know, that depend very, very closely on kind of small shifts in, in recruitment, um, you know, how they'll protect them against, uh, uh, th- 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 those, those wins. Yeah. I think that, um, there will be audit committees rewriting their risk registers as we speak and they're going bright red, frankly. Um, there are some, the, the, finances of higher education are so dependent on international students and there's quite a lot in here in the budget um that isn't going to help the international situation and we you know we haven't mentioned the word brexit yet (laughs) and which is also not helpful and the new charges for nhs um for international students and for eu nationals um which are going up though the international picture for both students and staff is not looking good. Of course, COVID-19 is going to have a massive impact. It's happening at just the moment when the recruitment um, process is in train. And so I've no idea, and probably no one else has, exactly what the impact is going to be for next academic year. And it just could tip some institutions over the edge. And when it comes to bailing people out, the government is not going to have universities at the top of their list. Obviously, as Johnny said, that's something that um, is going to be a, a, a massive concern to audit committees, to, to finance uh, directors and so on about that. But even before we get to that point, there's going to be so many other strains on the systems that we have. So, for example, if we start thinking about things like uh, closing campuses, um I was involved in looking at a lot of student protection plans at the time of registration, and they're simply not going to be easy to invoke um, or clear as to what exactly the position for students will be if 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 uh, a university does have to um, uh, close. And as we know, the OFS registered a load of people on student protection plans that it didn't really think were that robust. But unfortunately, they're now going to be tested possibly far sooner than anybody had realised. Um, student protection plans obviously had to link into business continuity plans. I know a lot of institutions are probably testing those plans now and trying to work out, you know, how robust they are. But again, uh, it's one thing to have a business continuity plan that talks about how do I continue my business if my individual uh, organisation ends up not being able to work as normal for some reason. What happens if you take that across an entire sector, across an entire country, and everything is, you know, similarly affected, the things you might have relied on to do it? And I've seen quite a lot of interesting commentary as well about this sort of magic wand of shifting everything online. And again, I don't think really we've even got to the bottom of how feasible is that, um, given the state of technology 
state of uh, agreements with staff about things like lecture capture. Um, can you even capture a lecture if there's no one there to deliver it? We're getting into these uh, kinds of you know really assessment. How do you do you know online exams if you can't you know gather people together to uh, to do them in person? Yes. It seems like a really tricky. Yes, way. Th- that also is going to apply to A levels. Yes. Um, if schools are having to close yes. and we're not going to have um, students sitting their exams in the summer, perhaps. I mean, we're a long way off that yet, so um, it may not be worth worrying too much, but it is worth starting to make contingency plans about how we're going to admit next year's students. Mary Kernot Cook, um, well, we, we, a friend we, of the show, of course, said that, that this year's cycle is going to be one big unconditional offer. Are we moving to post-qualification admissions you know, by force, yeah. <laughs> force majeure, <laughs> that we can't yeah. do anything else. I think, yeah, yeah. I, think, yeah, I, think, yeah. I, think, I think we might. And interesting on this, on this closure point, um, I was really fascinated to see some, some lines in the Guardian this week, um, some vice chancellors pushing back at the idea that, um, if, you know, government advice says we, you know, campuses should be closed, that, that you know, that's at all feasible or, or desirable. You know, not all students just live you know, a two-hour train ride from home. You know, they often live on campus. They might be estranged from their families. They might be international students. They can't get home. You know, they can't just be turfed out. And it's fascinating to see. There's clearly a bit of a row behind the scenes because uh, I think universities are concerned that DfE guidance will sort of treat them as, you know, basically big schools. You know, if, if, when you try and think, well, sort of, leak, what powers would they be relying on to order universities to shut rather than guidance to say, we think you should shut? Um, we are in completely uncharted territory at that point from a legal perspective well there's civil contingencies type stuff there's civil contingencies and uh, but i mean if you look back at the um conditions of, of registration um you know there's very kind of immediate stuff about um not you know if you if you don't follow government advice you know that's 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 going to be one of the red flags straight away so you know there could be a there could be a there could be a regulatory intervention before it gets to um, gets gets higher up. Regulatory intervention requires a sort of fairly lengthy process of suggesting what the breach of a condition has been, taking into account representations, deciding to take enforcement action, a challenge in the first tier tribunal that says, you know, this, this action was unjustified. So none of that actually gets the campus closed quickly. That's my point that, you know, how are you, how are you actually, if that's the view of government that they must close, and we are a very long way from thinking that they're going to uh, go down that sort of draconian route. That's the bit that interests me because the regulatory breaches, you'd have to take into account the mitigation and all the stuff you said then, Mark, about, you know, we had students that we couldn't send anywhere else. Um, we had to keep them on campus. We did what we could. That's that's all got to be taken into account in deciding whether that red flag actually means you've been irresponsible or, sim- you know, simply unable to implement the guidance in the way that DfE perhaps blithely expected you to. Right. Okay. Let's see who's been <laughs> blogging for us this week. Hi there, I'm Diana Beach and I'm the current Head of Government Affairs at the University of Warwick. This week I've written for Wonky as part of its International Women's Day series to give a very warm welcome to our two new Universities and Science Ministers. As a woman in HE policy myself, I'm absolutely delighted we finally have two women heading up these important roles. Yet I also recognise we still have a long way to go to ensure that theirs aren't the only female voices representing us around the policy making table. That's why I'm asking everyone in UK higher education this week If we're serious about shaping an inclusive future for the sector, then now is the time we let our women shine. I'm Katie Aikerman and I'm the Director of Quality and Standards for the University of Chichester. I've worked in higher education for over 20 years and had always assumed that one day I'd be a Deputy Vice-Chancellor somewhere. Having arrived at a point where I'm ready for this, I discovered that, actually, I was missing a doctorate and or professorial title. I thought about undertaking a doctorate and then realised that whilst that might help me, it wouldn't help any other academic administrator in higher education. 
I got to talking with my work friend Emma about this and realised that the majority of administrators are women and talented women, but without doctorates or professorial title. So as positive disruptors, we felt we should do something and a blog for Wonky was written. I'd like to see the sector catch up with the 21st century and recognise that this administrator can. Now, next up, the Office of Students has been in court. Uh, and while we're recording, um, a judicial review has been handed down. A decision on judicial review has been handed down. Uh, we're just getting this uh, from the Royal Courts of Justice. Um, this is the RFS versus Bloomsbury College, which was, I think, the, the first college to uh, be granted a judicial review um, in a decision uh, by RFS not to put them on the register, um, which is obviously a pretty critical thing for um, a provider. Um, and it seems like uh, the decision uh, not to put them on has been uh, declared lawful. Um, I'll just read a quick statement uh, being sent by the college. Um, it's saying, in response to today's decision, um, we're, of course, very disappointed that the court has ruled the RFS decision was lawful. We sought a judicial review because the refusal to register discriminates against institutions that specialise in serving students from diverse backgrounds and lower-income households who are all too often excluded from studying at degree level. We're absorbing this judgment and considering our appeal options. We will not be making any further statements at this time. Um, so this is fascinating and, and possibly one of the first big tests of, of RFS and the register. Um, and I guess it's sort of passed. Um, but obviously, this is sort of the tip of an iceberg, I think, of, of quite a lot of pain uh, and a very bumpy process that's got us there. Smita, can you just give us a bit of background to all of that? Yes, of course. So um, the... Higher Education and Research Act basically implemented a system where if providers wanted to be able to access certain benefits, they had to go onto the IFS register. And those benefits were obviously, you know, TIF or uh, recruitment of international students and access to student support and degree awarding powers and things like that. So, um, the OFS was the body that was charged with coming up f with the framework through which this registration process would uh, come uh, be, be carried out and it set out various criteria that it would apply to providers who wish to be registered. Now under the Act, in deciding what those criteria were, it had to have regard to various things such as the need to improve uh, the quality of education but also to uh, in enhance competition and choice uh, for students. So I guess what this judicial review uh, was about was whether it had really got that balance right um, because there, there have been certain providers who felt that they were unable to meet the criteria that the OFS had set uh, because they didn't reflect uh, the particular circumstances of those providers. As you just said, in the case of Bloomsbury Institute, they feel that their student body comes from a particular set of backgrounds, which means those criteria cannot be fairly applied to them. Uh, and then the uh, court's um, role is really not to sort of decide whether it thinks the OFS made the right or the wrong decision, but simply whether it operated within the parameters of the uh, discretion that it was given through the Higher Education and Research Act to set all this up. So as long as in a way it uh, was, was sort of operating within reasonable bounds and not completely irrationally, and it was following the published criteria that it had um, set, um, uh, that it had set, um, then that really makes it very hard for the court to intervene and, and, and quash decisions. It will say that was, you know, Parliament has decided the OFS is the right body to do this. And therefore, as long as the OFS is broadly operating within those parameters, we're not going to intervene. Now, obviously, I haven't seen the judgment, so I don't know if exactly what basis it was on. But generally, in judicial review, that is the uh, sort of test that the court will be applying. So, so our colleagues in the um, in, in the courtroom right now, uh, where the judgment's being being read out, and some interesting interesting things. Obviously, a lot of it was about um, B three, 
So um, the judge backs the use of the metrics. Um, is, it accepts all the OFS arguments about about using them. Uh, dismiss Bloomsbury's challenges on um, WP students in the context of um, uh, about unfairness of graduate outcomes measures. Uh, and said that the B3 uh, measure is neither irrational nor unfair nor arbitrary. And it is very uh, difficult through judicial review to challenge the substance of decisions, which really at, at its heart was what Bloomsbury probably were trying to do. They were trying to say, look, you've put this um, this criterion too high. You, you've, you've, you've set it at a level that's not appropriate. But you know, as the judgment seems to be recognising, unless it was a completely irrational decision, um, and as long as there's some reasoning behind why it was reached, they're not really going to interfere with that. And I think the sector sort of needs to reflect on what that tells us about the fruitfulness of future challenges to some of what OFS might do that the sector doesn't Absolutely, like Absolutely, because I mean, there are, there are a handful of colleges and um, and providers that, that haven't yet made it onto the register and are in different stages of, of challenging uh, the decision because it is devastating, of course. I mean, it'd be very difficult to, to operate um, not on the OFS register. And, uh, I think it's especially difficult for um, Bloomsbury Institute to operate because such a large proportion of their students were from um, disadvantaged backgrounds or are from disadvantaged backgrounds and so wouldn't be in a position to switch they would the institution wouldn't be in a position to switch its model to um, a privately paid for one um, especially easily and this if you ask me I, you know, I don't know the rights and wrongs of the case. Um, I I bow to the judgment of the judge. It's and this is obviously the right decision in law. OFS should take this away and go and examine their own consciences and see whether or not there is enough context taken into consideration. I don't want to see institutions with. Um, terrible retention rates and with poor outcomes and for students and low satisfaction and so on and so forth. But they do need to put it in context of who are the students and what are the opportunities being given to those students that they wouldn't have had otherwise and couldn't get elsewhere. And is this institution actually serving a purpose that, that, that has a right to be offered? There's, a, there's an interesting piece published by Nicola Dandridge, chief exec of, of RFS this morning on Wonky. Um, seemed to me to, to read like a, a bit of a shift in tone. And, and obviously no coincidence that it, that it comes at, at the time of this judgment. I, I, I read it as, um, I guess, trying to be magnanimous in this, in this victory uh, and saying that, you know, they have very much listened and learned from um, the, the complaints from the sector about tone particularly and, and that kind of, um, I guess, the, the, the rules of engagement. I think that actually there will, there will be more a sharper form of challenge to some other decisions though, Mark. So I think this one, which was about getting onto the register, um, there isn't a sort of set process for challenging it under the Act. Whereas uh, once you're on the register, if they're then going to try and take action against you, um, you have this right to go to the, uh, a, an administrative court called the First Tier Tribunal. And they are possibly more likely to be uh, willing to look at some of the substance of what people are challenging. So I think, uh, although... That it's important to learn from this case and it would be great if uh, the OFS did what Johnny had said and what Nicola's article suggests it's been willing to do and there would be no need for future challenge. Those separate kind of challenges might just be a little bit more um, uh, scrutiny and, and of, of the actual decision. What sorts of challenges are we talking about? These are, so these are providers already on the register? Um, so, th so there are specific areas set out in the Act which can go to the first tier tribunal and things like sort of deregistration, um, imposition of... Um, 
uh, monetary penalties, those sorts of things. They're, but they're, they're specified in the Act, uh, the precise areas that you could take to the first tier tribunal. So I think well that's going to be that's going to be fascinating to see whether um, we see more JRs in, in light of this, um, or whether uh, other others who have these uh, who have these challenges in, in the pipeline are going to be put off. Um, it doesn't. I mean, it's you know, this, it's pr- it looks from the, what's coming through um, to be fairly um, fairly black and white uh, decision. So um, as as Smita says, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't give a lot of grounds for um, challenging the registration process going forward, and I think that that is significant. Now it's time for yes, but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that gets things done. Our academic staff numbers and universities growing or shrinking are largely staying the same. I've plotted data from the latest ESA staff release by institution. The question is whether there is a correlation between leavers and starters between 2017-18 and 2018-19, or is something else happening? Well, if I've understood the question, which I'm not sure I have, then I think my coin has oh my coin has come down as heads. So I'm going to say that um, <laughs> that staff numbers are going up, but only very slightly. Okay, and um, I'm going to go the opposite way, and I would have done that anyway. Uh, I think they're probably going down. There is a strong correlation. R squared is 0.91, but the direction of the line shows that on average, more providers are growing their academic staff numbers rather than shedding staff. The graph itself is fascinating if you're interested in what's happening at your provider and is on the podcast page of the website. I've only included providers that submit this data to HESA because where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, the 1752 group working with uh, legal firm McAllister Oliverius has published its guidance on handling cases of staff student misconduct. Um, Smita, what's going on here? So this is a really interesting document that's been published that tries to address what's legally quite a tricky area um, because it deals with allegations of sexual misconduct made by students against members of staff. And the reason that that is a difficult area from a legal perspective is because very, very different legal frameworks apply to the relationship between the higher education institution and its staff um, and its relationship with its students. Um, And that has led to you know, it's fair to say challenges in how do you process uh, allegations of sexual misconduct in those areas. But in the words of Johnny Nash, I would say that this particular piece of guidance leaves us with more questions um, than answers from a from a legal perspective. So, th- so the first thing it does, which is actually quite a sort of seismic shift, um, is to say that we should not be treating uh, these complaints as a form of discipline. Now, discipline in an HEI is really the, uh, the, the, the university taking action um, against either a member of staff or a student because it is in its interest institutionally to do so. You know, this person has, has, has breached some, some code of conduct and the university wants to take action. So what the 1752 group are saying is stop looking at it like that and start to see it almost like a civil action where the student is bringing a complaint against a member of staff and therefore the key players in this are no longer the HEI and what it wants to do but um, the staff and students and you just let the, you create a system where they can present their evidence to an uh, adjudicator uh, and it's decided that way so that's actually quite a big change in how you look at these um, cases. Uh, the second area where I think it's, it's created quite a lot of um, uh, difficulties or potential could create quite a lot of difficulties in is the uh, how they're proposing confidentiality ought to be approached. So they're saying that you know the outcomes of of these cases, whether it's that a member of staff is being dismissed or a member of staff is being uh, suspended or whatever it might be, um, or moved from their post, that should not be confidential. So that should just be something that's public. 
or available to be discussed publicly by the complainants um, if they wish. Now, again, from a sort of operational management of an organisation point of view, that could become quite challenging. Um, they're suggesting a sort of central register of cases and outcomes uh, that, that's maintained, which creates all sorts of questions about data protection and security of that um, sort of information. And then, I mean, I could go on forever on this, so I will just confine myself to one more uh, area, um, which is that uh, once proceedings are initiated, they're proposing that they should not then be capable of being discontinued by the institution. The only person who can choose to discontinue them is the complainant. Um, and again, uh, you know, that having seen how these cases play out in the organisational context, that could be quite difficult because there may be all sorts of reasons why everybody else concludes that we shouldn't let this case carry on, but the complainant may not want to. Um, and equally, they're saying that if you settle the proceedings, the complainant should be a party to that settlement agreement and capable of enforcing it. So this is kind of quite radical um, guidance that departs from quite a lot of things that uh traditionally the HEIs have done in dealing with these cases and I think it's um, quite a nice branding proposition of describing this as, as guidance when essentially it's it's from an activist group that wants to see sort of change in a very important area um, but which means that the guidance kind of doesn't necessarily read like the sort of fairly neutral guidance that you're used to seeing being issued by uh, you know the likes of the OIA or the ECHR and so on. My worry is that if it becomes the kind of uh, expected standard of how universities will deal with it, then very soon we are going to hit the sort of thorny legal issues that I have identified, which I feel the guidance just rather brushes away. It sort of says all those things are very difficult and make it hard to investigate these things and therefore we just should ignore them and carry on um, investigating them in the way that we think is better. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I think we have to... It, it, there are bits of it that I think really do need to be looked at, but that's also true of... Uh, reflected in things like the OFS consultation but there are going to be some areas where I suspect we need further thinking before it could really be adopted So that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show drop us an email and team on and if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Johnny and Samita and everyone at Wonky HQ for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.